It's Jared. We're finally back, and we've been gone for way too long. I was working on a project for Student Life, Washington University student newspaper called Looking Back, and we were retooling things here at Contested, and we still are. But in the meanwhile, we thought, why not go back to our roots? Go back to what we've always done, while we continue to design new things. It'll be a mix of everything, if you will. So for today's episode, we're going to talk about world poverty. Now, that's one of those terms when you hear you're like world poverty, world peace, you know, it's something that's so abstract and so hard to quantify, yet it's everywhere. It's so pervasive. It affects millions, hundreds of millions of people. So the question always is, is what do we do about it? And for a long time, there's been a debate among political scientists and economists about the concept of foreign aid, the idea that the U.S. should fund through a variety of measures, other governments and NGOs to promote poverty reduction, or at least in theory promote poverty reduction. And today's guest is someone right at the forefront of this issue, Clint Borgen. The Borgen Project is an institute that looks to fight world poverty by using U.S. aid dollars and resources. So I'm sitting down with him today to talk about, one, should the U.S. be even actively intervening to solve policy abroad given its spotty track record and two how should the u.s go about doing it to ensure that it does achieve poverty reduction and not other unintended consequences i'm really excited for this episode we haven't really talked a lot about foreign policy on the show but i think this is a great way to launch in so if you're interested in world politics related poverty related or simply how to lobby people domestically to solve problems abroad stay tuned Hi, Clint. Hey, how's it going, Jared? Doing well, doing well. Thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Look, look forward to talking with you. Yeah, thank you. And I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation today, um, especially because for a lot of listeners on our show, domestic policy is kind of normally what we focus on. But I think it's really important to kind of dive into a little bit of the U.S.'s role in international politics, foreign affairs, and all of that. Before we get there, if you could give us a brief introduction on who you are and what is the Borgen Project. Yeah, so the Borgen Project is an organization that's working to make global poverty a greater priority of U.S. foreign policy. So you can kind of think of us almost as like lobbyists for the world's poor, where we go and meet directly with members of Congress and build support for legislation, and then uh, mobilize people across the country. We have volunteers in all 50 states who are doing grassroots work and talking directly with their members of Congress and building support in their districts for various programs and bills and legislation that basically helps people out of poverty. That's great. And yeah, I kind of like the way you put it, like the lobbies for the world's poor. So I guess kind of before getting into the, the nitty gritty of the policy itself, how did you kind of find an interest in fighting world poverty? Obviously, it's a, it's a noble cause and sure. no one wants to see someone, you know, living in kind of inhumane conditions. But I guess do you have a kind of a, a personal connection to it at all. After my sophomore year of college, I went and volunteered over in Kosovo when the, the war and ethnic cleansing had been going on over there. And so I worked in refugee camps over there and, and on the ground, it, it just sort of was mind blowing how little it takes to improve conditions for people. It's like that basic human need of food, water and shelter and give people a tent to live in and access to clean water and basic food supplies. And in those short term emergency situations, it has obviously a huge, well, it keeps people alive. It has a game changing effect. So seeing that on the ground was very interesting and then and empowering for that matter. But then I was also like deeply bothered that the U.S. wasn't doing more. So over there, and the U.S. had a big role over there too. I should, should point that out. But it, it's just, I grew up in a small patriotic town in the Northwest and just kind of had this view that we were off 
the U.S. is always saving the world. And, you know, we do a lot of great stuff overseas and have a great impact, but there's just a big disconnect between what I personally had thought was being done and what was actually being done. And most of the world's hotspots you go into, there's countries from all over the world working together to kind of right some of these wrongs. And I think the U.S. has a unique ability as kind of the world's agenda setter to kind of push a lot of these things through and have, have a bigger impact. Just kind of saw a need for organization that can kind of bridge that gap between what most people think and want the U.S. doing and then what's what's actually occurring and try to put pressure on U.S. leaders to, to step up their game, basically. Yeah, and I think it's, it's interesting because once you get kind of your hands into a project in the grassroots, on the ground, it's it, you have a very different perspective than I guess kind of just reading in the news something like, yeah. oh, the U.S. is you know deploying, some, some, a lot of times it's militarily, but like right. de- either deploying troops or sending aid to um i don't know like the rwandan genocide or whatever you just kind of hear it like yeah. or right now it's like the uyghurs or rohingya or whatever yeah. kind of it, it may be the next humanitarian crisis but obviously if you're there it's nothing would probably be enough so i think that's that's great that it's kind of that personal yeah. connection there but going a little bit into the the kind of policy and politics of it i know a big focus of the borgen project is the international affairs budget and kind of right. the monetary tools the u.s has to combat world poverty. So why, in your opinion, is the international affairs budget so instrumental in world poverty prevention? Yeah, so just from a funding mechanism, like when the US funds direct aid programs, it starts in the international affairs budget. So for, for our standpoint, impact we're going to have on the ground depends on the levels US is funding at. And one thing I think for people to understand too is you hit it on the nail where there's a lot of confusion around what we do internationally, militarily, and that a lot of times gets lumped into the word foreign aid. I always say a you know, foreign aid is one of those things like you can talk to 10 people and they'll have things they hate about it, things they like about it, but it all gets lumped under that one term foreign aid. So there's programs that I'm like, this is horrible. We shouldn't be doing that. And there's programs I'm like, this is beautiful. You know, keep up the great work. Like It's just amazing <laughs> stuff. So but it all gets lumped under that word foreign aid. So I'd like to definitely differentiate that people hearing that term have a lot of different opinions and a lot of them are very right and a lot of them are very wrong. And, and there's a lot of truth to everything. So I, I just want to throw that out there. But our focus as organization is really on poverty focused aid. So these are programs that are helping people help themselves out of poverty. And that, those are kind of the areas we, we target as much as possible. But yeah, big picture is it's, it's ultimately kind of a small budget compared to other stuff. It's around $52 billion you know, as comparison, military spending is usually around $800 billion per year. So relatively small compared to a lot of stuff. The U.S., it's less than 1% of the federal budget goes to the international aid budget. That budget, though, includes everything. So it's everything from funding the embassies to working out diplomatic treaties for fishermen, U.S. fishermen and farmers to get their products, you know, export kind of related stuff as well in different countries to actual humanitarian work and direct aid on the ground. So really it's a, it's a budget that encompasses a lot of different stuff, but our, our focus is really on that funding that's helping those living on less than a dollar 90 per day is kind of our target. Yeah, that's, that's great. And I think it's smart that you kind of disaggregate the meaning of foreign aid because yeah, yeah I, I'm everything I've, I've kind of seen is like, it's very, you know, in broad strokes and obviously there's certain kind of direct programs that are effective and I think are less controversial than just a general idea of foreign aid. If you could kind of guess, give us maybe one example then of what one of those projects that you are focusing on would yeah. look like. So kind of what is a good foreign aid project using that term somewhat subjectively? Yeah. So one is we, so we worked on the Global Food Security Act, which passed, it's almost five years ago now. And that bill, what it does did is it worked with improving crop productivity in poor countries. So basically, if you're a farmer in one of those regions that, and you're earning $100 a year off your acre of land, 
And if you suddenly have access to training, and sometimes it's as simple as bringing in agricultural experts to come in and train local farmers, or access to fertilizer for your crops, and you're suddenly now you're earning $300 a year off your acre of land. So that's increased your family's income. It's also increased the village's food supply. So that's one of those like fairly simple stuff, but stuff around agriculture is pretty effective. Like just, um, you, you know, cause it both it helps the poor farmers increase their income and then also increases food supply in those regions. That, that's always a good one. Access to water is always a personal favorite of mine. I worked on the water for the World Act and that, that bill passed. And so many different diseases affecting these parts of the world are directly tied to the fact that people are drinking unclean water and don't have access to clean, safe drinking water. So beyond the fact that we all need water to survive. <laughs> it also is a huge issue in terms of creating diseases when people are drinking unsafe water is, is a big one as well. And then also if you have access to water, you can again, help grow your crops better and have better crop productivity too. Yeah. And I think this is one, again, we are correct where food and water, no one's going to ever kind of contest that that's an important, right. uh, important standard of living. No really matter how you get it, if people can have more access to clean water, more access to food, that's generally a, a good thing. But there are some things, as you mentioned, about foreign aid that are kind of still contested, nonetheless, yeah. whether kind of the outcomes or not. One thing that at least kind of classical economic modernization theory, which is kind of a buzzword there, yeah. throws around is, right, the idea if you kind of give money directly to governments, they become less dependent on their local citizens and can kind of abuse foreign aid. And that has happened a few times in the past where the U.S. has kind of block granted money to a government and then that's gone kind of awry. So I guess, how does the Borgen project kind of ensure that the money and the resources are going directly to people who need it and not kind yeah. of being wasted on, on other projects or on other people? Yeah, you hit it on the nail. And that was really like a more of a, we, see, we still see a little bit dabbling in this, but it really was like a Cold War thing where like US yeah. was like, don't become a communist and we'll give you a, whatever, a billion dollars and please use it for your people. But if you don't, we don't really care. We just don't want you to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was sort of, it was definitely used in that way. It's created a lot of, I think, issues, obviously, to say the least. But then, so the big fiction nowadays, there's all these mechanisms in place to ensure the money is getting to people. One really good bipartisan program is called the Millennium Challenge Account. And basically, for governments in developing countries to receive funding from that particular account to do different projects, whether it's like infrastructure or things, they have to address like the strict criteria of corruption and transparency. So it's kind of created this whole incentive for a lot of these countries to be extremely transparent and provide a lot of details. Overall, though, most of the funding, it goes to organizations on the ground that are effective and meet USAID's criteria for grants. So they have to go through all the screening and, and show how the money is used. And it's, tr it's tracked really thoroughly. Anyone can go to USAID's ID, USAID's website and view the reviews of some of the, these reports too. And they'll, they're pretty transparent about this work, that network, we had issues here. And one thing I'd say is a really different ballgame than I think how it was in the past. There's always probably going to be issues here and there, but overall, sure. the vast, vast majority is... I, I feel pretty confident how it's being utilized. Yeah, and I think that's that's a fair point. At least something I didn't know is that you're kind of, there's been this trend from giving money to governments to giving it to either NGOs yeah. or kind of local groups that are just need the money and resources and they already have the game plan opposed to kind of the U.S. Yeah. setting the agenda. And that kind of leads into the, the second concern, right? The first one being this logistical, is the money actually achieving its goal? And the second one is kind of a larger moral question, yeah. which is why is the U.S., kind of the one in charge of doing this. You had mentioned earlier, the US is obviously a, a global superpower and very much 
at least for the past kind of century, was the agenda setter in foreign policy. Yeah. But a lot of people, I would say specifically on kind of the further left, have realized, well, U.S. doesn't have like the best track record when getting involved in yeah. foreign affairs for, you know, whether it was kind of hegemonic influence or really going after their own resources or whatever. And there's kind of a, a litany of examples here. So kind of why does the Borgen Project still rely on U.S. action to do this, opposed to kind of just be an NGO that bypasses the political system right. in that way? So the big picture is scale of impact. So if we you know, I mentioned the Water for the World Act, that bill's helped, I think it's up to 50 million people already, just that one bill passing. If we were a direct aid agency on the ground just trying to build wells, we could never raise enough money in my lifetime to build enough wells to reach 50 million people. So like the level mm. of impact you can have at the government level is, is quite phenomenal. One thing I'll, I'll point out too is that there's, you know, sometimes there's this concern about U.S. sort of imposing on other countries, but I, I can just tell you as when I've gone into AIDS orphanages and I see, <laughs> you know, starving, not, not necessarily starving, but extremely sick kids and babies. And as an American, I'm not like, how dare we impose our will by funding this <laughs> particular orphanage and these, you know, how are we, you know, we're not helping these kids, but, you know, <laughs> by uh, providing them bed nets and bedding and medical nurses to help them. So I, I think some of the stuff on, in theory, I, I, I get where it comes from, but when you're practically on the ground and you, you see the conditions and the basic human needs, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty useful what we're doing and it has a big impact the other thing to keep in mind is we, we hear the negative right so we hear this disaster happened this war happened here we go again helping these people helping people in this this country that country but we kind of lose fact you know 1.2 billion people since 1990 have risen out of poverty so poverty rates went from 36 percent in 1990 it's now down to 9.2 so i mean we're talking about the entire population of the U.S. times three is the number of people who've lifted out of poverty since 1990. And that's, you know, that's the direct result of a couple of things. One is some of these programs designed to help people help themselves out of poverty. Other factors are on the business side as you create, if you're creating jobs, affordable jobs or livable jobs, wages in some of these countries, it's lifting people out of poverty. And that, that's an age old thing. It doesn't matter if you're in New York City or someone in the Sudan, if you have access to a job that pays a livable wage, you're suddenly out of poverty. There's definitely examples of aid programs that didn't work. And there's definitely an overall theme of the vast majority of poverty has dropped pretty substantially over the last um, 20 years, 20, 30 years in particular. So there's some, something's working. I'll put that that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, obviously the impact is greater. That's no question when you kind of have the power and the resources that the U.S. does. One thing that I picked up on there, though, that I think was interesting is kind of, or at least in my mind, I'm envisioning mm. poverty relief in kind of two ways. One being this immediate help, right? How can we yeah. build wells? you know, get, build an orphanage, build schools, kind of immediate institutional building, if you will. Yeah. And the second question, which is a lot harder to answer, and one that I certainly don't have an answer to, is how do yeah. you kind of create long-term sustained economic growth, jobs that pay livable wages? So it's not yeah. continually countries relying on the U.S. to kind of come in with disaster relief, but instead kind of growing naturally on their own. And I guess kind of my question there is, does the Borgen Project focus on both divides there? And how do we kind of move toward the second? So we're not continually just finding yeah. like immediate solutions, I suppose. The second one's harder to answer. First one's the bases are covered on the first one. We tend to see societies go more towards the second one naturally, right? So if the, sure. if the region becomes 
more stable and better basic infrastructure than suddenly businesses are able to, to operate there. We worked on a bill several years back called Electrify Africa Act that ended up passing. And it was basically looking at how do you get access to electricity in different parts of sub-Saharan Africa? Because like something like 80% of the population didn't have access to electricity. So pretty hard for businesses to thrive and sure. operate in that condition, hard for hospitals and schools to operate in that condition. So that was one of those where like even just improving some of the basic infrastructure has a huge impact on bringing in businesses and jobs for that next level part you're, you're discussing. So they are very intertwined. I, I definitely won't claim to be an expert on the second part because I sure. think that's where it kind of gets more into like the role of business community and role of other actors coming in and having impact. But I will say, you know, you look at US's top trading partners, all but I think Canada is the only one that wasn't at one point a recipient of U.S. foreign assistance. So a lot of these countries, whether it's the Marshall Plan countries over Europe, over in Europe, or if it's Japan, South Korea, a lot of these countries at one point were receiving foreign assistance from the U.S., graduated off of assistance, and are now on an annual basis, we see, we see way more back in economic return from those partnerships than we ever put in into helping lift them out of poverty. So there's definitely a big business reason too why it's in our, our interest to do this and that's why you've seen like the chamber of commerce and some other groups come out and call for strong funding for the national affairs budget that's definitely fair and yeah they're obviously connected in some ways but and, and there's a lot more kind of sociological factors at play for why certain areas are kind of slowed growth versus quick growth and that's kind of i guess an economic conversation for another time but in the immediacy i guess what are the next kind of major steps or policies the borgen project is focusing on and then larger, is there kind of a paradigm shift, to use a buzzword, in how poverty is being addressed worldwide? One trend we've definitely started to see is a lot more focus on local organizations in those countries. So mm. I think, and this hits on your earlier question, but back in the day, I think there was a little bit more of an attitude of like, we are the experts coming in and we're <laughs> going to tell you this great way to help you out and lo and behold that didn't always work sometimes it did sometimes it didn't. so there's been a lot more in global development sphere in general a lot more focus on finding out the basic needs that even like a micro level like almost village to village and not being so inclined to impose this great idea that worked in china but might not be working in sure. the congo so there, there, there's been a big shift there as an organization our focus is we've been doing a lot around covid right now and trying to get the vaccine so that, that's kind of been our focus at the moment you know i mentioned all the huge success there's been in poverty reducing but covid is definitely a real threat where it's pushing a lot more people back into poverty the projections are about 150 million directly as a result of covid will potentially be going back into poverty as a, as a result of this this one disease so that's that's an area we look at just random story i'll throw out that there so i was talking sure. to a staff member who's in south africa and we started talking and you know in the u.s everyone now has access to the vaccine at this point whoever whoever wants it has gotten it um but she was saying like her elderly mom just now was getting the vaccine so this was last week we were talking right so this is very recent so yeah they're a long ways away from, uh, and South Africa is definitely one of the more uh, modernized countries in, in um, Africa, but they're still a very long ways away from getting the vaccine. So I was telling her how out here in Seattle, they were giving people free hot dogs at the Mariners game if they would get the vaccine. And it was just so mind blowing to her that here we're like bribing our 
you know, people who haven't gotten the vaccine yet. We got these lotteries. People are trying to try to get people to get the vaccine. And then over there, like people are just dying left and right. And there's like months, if not years before they're likely to have the vaccine. And so it just one of those examples of like our reality versus the reality of some of these places. Sure. And, uh, it, it can be quite different to say the least. Yeah, that's a great anecdote. I think, I think it's going to be interesting. I guess, I don't know, it'll be hard to tell now, but do you think those 150 people slipping back into poverty. And I will add here, this is the global standard for poverty. Um, I think that we're talking about, we're not talking about the US poverty line in terms of world poverty in case anyone was confused on that. But do you think that'll be a frictional change in the sense that, you know, once kind of COVID fully subsides, whenever that may be, it'll be easy to rebound those people back into a kind of a livable situation? Or do you think some of that will be permanent? Um, I, th- I think there'll be a definite rebound. It, it's so hard to tell. So like, you know, one of the big things when, when AIDS hit in sub-Saharan Africa was all of a sudden you had, you know, teachers dying. So the kids in that village no longer had a teacher. You had farmers dying. So you had less food being developed. So the thing with COVID is it's primarily, it hasn't targeted people of that working age as much or young people. So sure. It, might have less it probably will, will have less impact than some other diseases we've seen but yeah i think i think my answer is we'll see a lot of that rebound but it's not going to happen by itself there's definitely going to need to be some actions taken to kind of help get things moving again for sure yeah absolutely anything else you'd like to add uh no yeah i just pre- appreciate the podcast you guys are doing i love that you're engaging people in politics it's really important yeah no absolutely thank you so much for coming on we'll put in our description here the link to the borgen project website if you want to check out what they're doing or get involved but yeah and clint thank you so much for coming on again yeah very nice to meet you thank you for listening to this episode of contested If you like what you heard, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. I'd like to give a big shout out to Clint Borgen for coming on. Please check out the Borgen Project and the policies they're lobbying for. It's it's something I think unique compared to other organizations in the U.S. And yes, we're back. We don't fully know when we're going to be releasing what, but please stay tuned. We're going to have new episodes coming, I promise you. And until next time, thank you for helping us understand politics together.